any of you have any concerns for the state of the nation, but if you do, we got, we got a set of psalms for you for that very purpose. So we're going to look at psalms, a particular psalm, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 72. Um, now this psalm had a very specific role in the kingdom of Israel, and uh, we're going to talk about that and ultimately what it means for us. But before we do that, I want to start somewhere else. So I'd like to start in the New Testament, if you're not familiar with how the Bible's laid out. Um, miles from the book of Psalms, which you can find kind of in the middle, um, miles from there, uh, near the front of the book and near the back of the book, written years and years after the Psalms, generations and generations after the Psalms were written. Um, you see, the, the Psalm were written during this period of Israel known as the kingdom years. So there was a king and uh, in the nation of Israel. And while Israel enjoyed many, many years as a kingdom with many different kings, um, I mean, they have a whole collection of Psalms written for the king and for the kingdom. And so, of course, they enjoyed many years of that, but eventually their kingdom was overthrown. And their king, uh, they were eventually taken into captivity to live as slaves and servants in the homes and the courts of those who took them. But even when they were able to come back to their homeland, the nation of Israel, uh, many years ago, they still lived under foreign rule. So there was the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, if you remember from history class. So it was during the Roman Empire that Jesus came. And uh, Jesus came and he lived amongst the people, and uh, it's when he lived and he died during the time of the Roman Empire. And after his death and resurrection, the church was born. And the church, even in the context of persecution in the Roman Empire, began to spread throughout. And um, Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, wrote a lot of letters to some of the leaders. And he wrote one letter in particular where he's talking to a young pastor that he's mentoring, and he tells him something, and he gives him a command that I've found to be very difficult at times. I don't know if it's ever difficult for you, but it's a very simple, very, very simple command. This is what he says. It's in the letter he writes to this pastor by the name of Timothy. So we call the letter First Timothy because there was two. And this is the first one, First Timothy 2, 1 through uh, Uh, one through two, it says this. It says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. So he says that we should pray for all people, but especially who? Kings and people in authority. Now, during this time, the Christians, especially Jewish Christians, this would have been uh, uniquely difficult because the leaders and those in authority during this time in the the empire of Rome, um, they weren't always very nice. Uh, I don't know if you knew that about the Caesars, uh, but they're not exactly known for being great, uh, especially to Christians. A number of them were even uh, persecuted them, doing terrible, terrible things. You can Google it um, if you want to know some of the things the Romans did to the Christians. But it wasn't just the Caesars, all of these other leaders, because it was this big empire, all of these local prefects and governors and then soldiers that were roaming around the land of Israel and the other places where the churches. Um, a, a great amount of persecution and, and, opposite, and oppression and, and, and order. And so if they're anything like us, which I'm guessing, you know, humans are typically the same, even at different times. If they're anything like us, uh, I know for me, it's Uniquely difficult to pray for people I don't like. Am I the only one? It's it's uniquely difficult. I mean, it's not impossible. It's just I don't really want to do it. Uh, Pray for people that I don't particularly like. And it's not that the early Christians wouldn't have liked the Romans in charge, but it would have been easy not to like them um, because they weren't exactly nice or good or did what was right. And, and, And so I wonder, how do you pray for people you disagree with? especially people in power, people who are leaders. And I'm sure that regardless of where you are in this great world of political 
uh, spectrum that there's been at least one leader over you that you've disagreed with. <laughs> this is the assumption I'm coming in with today. How do you pray? Where do you, how do you find the words to pray for someone you disagree with? Well, what's great is that for the Jewish Christians, there would have easily been a prayer to pull from, a prayer to give them words when they couldn't find the words themselves. Because a well-versed Jewish Christian would have been familiar with the Psalms, and they would, have been, they would have known of this whole collection of songs and poems that would give words to their prayers, and specifically prayers for the, the purpose of praying for leaders. These Psalms are what we call the royal Psalms. They weren't written to be prayed for Roman rulers per se, but they were written uh, to be prayed for the kings of Israel. But they would have at least given them some words, some context, some things that we should look for and pray for, for a Caesar or for a king or for a president. So Psalm 72 is one of these prayers. It's a royal psalm. It would have been used in the uh, ancient kingdom of Israel actually during a coronation ceremony. When a new king uh, took reign, they would, of course, have this massive ceremony, as we still do in many monarchs. And this psalm would have been used as part of that ceremony, either sung or recited. We're not sure. Now, as we read this prayer, we get to see what the ideal really is. What God wants in a king of Israel, and ultimately what God wants any person who's going to have power or any person who's going to be in authority. And while none of the kings really lived into this ideal, none of the kings of Israel, they would still pray for this. And this would still give them this picture of what the right king would look like. In fact, most of Israel's kings, they just completely fell short of this prayer. And yet it remained the royal prayer and it was recited at every coronation ceremony. With each king, they would offer it. You see, I think sometimes we view prayer, and you hear this a lot in our culture, we view prayer as basically sending positive thoughts in someone's direction. This is even how we talk about it. You're like, hey, uh, if, if you know something bad happens, it was like, hey, send some positive thoughts and prayers, or I appreciate your thoughts and prayers. And it's this idea that like we want to think positively towards somebody, and we kind of like metaphysically send blessing in their direction. Have you, have you ever heard people talk about prayer in this, this way? And, and so I think when we look at prayer this way, we say to those people we disagree or those people we don't particularly want to bless, and we say, no, thank you. I'm not, I don't want to send positive thoughts your direction. Have you ever not wanted to send positive thoughts in someone's direction? So we just don't pray for them at all. But friends, that's not what prayer is. Um, prayer isn't always just trying to bless someone or, or send positive thoughts in their direction. More often, prayer is pleading with God to change something about this world. Prayer is pleading with God to change something about this world. It's this opportunity to change the status quo. It's a powerful force that seeks to partner with God to bring about real change in people's hearts. And it can speak truth, and it can invite and inspire and heal. When it comes to praying for our world, this earth, you know, and all that's happening. It could be summed up in the first line of Jesus' very powerfully simple prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up in the church, maybe you had to recite it at a certain time in the service or, or whatever. But it starts out by saying, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, bring your stuff amongst us. Like, bring your kingdom down here. We want our kings and our leaders, and we want our community to look more like the way you look. 
So bring thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So come, Lord, and bring it here. Now, if you were to expand that simple prayer from that, that simple line from this really short prayer we call the Lord's Prayer and expand it and talk about what that looked like, you would get Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is in many ways just an extended version of thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, come and make things right again. It's a prayer that God's reign would come to earth through an earthly king's reign and that things would be made right again. So without any further ado, let's look at Psalm 72. Um, if you have your Bibles or your phone, you can go to it. You can follow along in the Bible app and find us in the events tab. Uh, Psalm 72, starting with verse 1. We're going to read the whole psalm today in little sections and talk about each one. So Psalm 72, verse 1. It says this. It says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. So right from the start, we see that this is a prayer, don't we? It's a prayer for the king. They're asking something for the king on the king's behalf, and it's addressed to God. So there are people who are asking God to give the king justice and righteousness. Now, something as you read the Psalms, one of the things you need to know, and this is kind of cool, is that the Psalms, their primary poetic device is repetition. Now, the reason that's cool is because it's easily translated. Most other poetic devices can't be translated, but the Psalms' main poetic device is repetition, and that can be translated. And you see that in this passage. But you see a very particular kind of repetition. Um, I had to look this up, and I might not even say it right. Uh, do we have any uh, literature? scholars in the room? None. All right, good. I feel much more comfortable. It's called chiastic. He says, justice, righteousness, righteousness, justice. And, and chiastic means that you repeat something, but you repeat it in the reverse order. It's a device that's used in ancient literature a lot. Um, a lot of ancient poems use this kind of repetition, and it's meant for a couple reasons. One, it helps emphasize something that's really important. Um, and two, it also helps in predominantly oral cultures to remember it. So you can remember justice, righteousness, righteousness, justice. But there's also this really beautiful poetic thing that happens. In a sense, in a very poetic sort of way, it's this idea, as we say these words in repetition, it, it's meant to surround the king in justice and righteousness. Justice, righteousness, righteousness, justice. Justice being the ability to make the right decisions regarding difficult situations, to bring about what is right or just to those who have been wronged, to bring about a right case or the right verdict to a case. And righteousness, the ability to do the right thing, to have honesty and integrity. And it's justice and righteousness and righteousness and justice surrounding the leader. That's what should surround the king. That's what they're asking for anyways. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this when it comes to prayer, but you typically don't, if you're, if you're thinking about this, you don't typically pray for something if it can just naturally happen on its own. Have, have you thought about this? There's, we don't need to pray for something and if it's going to happen anyways. We, we might. We might pray for it for other reasons because we're worried about it or anxious. But if it's going to happen anyways, there isn't as much of a need to pray. We pray for things that are not going to happen unless God intercedes. And here the people of Israel start out this royal psalm by praying for something very specific, praying that the king would do what's right and, and do things that are just. And they're praying for that, friends, because... If God didn't intercede, guess what? The king probably wasn't going to. 
And that's where everyone says, amen. Have you seen this in life and amongst leaders or people with power? Power so easily corrupts. It happens all the time in a lot of different ways. And so the people begin to pray, like, yes, power will corrupt, but, but God, we need you to intercede, and we need you to make sure that those in power continue to do what's right. And if you don't intercede, God, we're screwed. <laughs> like, it's not going to work out. But if you do, and the king does what is right and does what is just, then we know good things are going to happen. Verse 3, he says, May the mountains then bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. Now, the Hebrew word for uh, here for prosperity is the word shalom. Oftentimes, it's translated peace. We looked at it actually a couple weeks ago. But overall, it just means well-being. It's the word used to describe the world as it should be. God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And you'll see this over and over again. The success of the kingdom of Israel was entirely based on whether the king, the person in leadership, ultimately responsible, was willing to do the right thing. Prosperity would come because the king did what was right. So we, we might call this, and I came up with this word, so this is original to this time together, guys. You ready for this? It's what we might call trickle-down righteousness. And it's something we see in Scripture a lot, actually, especially with the kings. And it might sound strange, but that's what we have here. Good things would happen to the people in the land when the leader set the example and stood for what was right. Now, this isn't always true. Christians in the Roman Empire had to operate within a corrupt government, and they had to give of themselves, and they were able to do many great things and love many people. But when you are operating under a corrupt government, and I have to say, oftentimes Christianity thrives in corrupt governments. Some of the fastest growing church plant movements are happening right now in governments that are oftentimes oppressive to Christianity. So there's this sense that Christianity can grow when the government isn't on board. But, but you are limited about how much you're able to do um, and how much you can accomplish. So this reminds me of a, a friend of mine. He started a new church in Fort Wayne. One time I was talking to them about uh, the work that he was doing with the homeless. Their church was right downtown, and it was a mixture of homeless as well as other people. And when I was talking to him, he was really discouraged. He was telling me that, you know, we, we come and we, we give to the homeless um, uh, uh, tents, and we give them blankets, you know, things that people need if you're going to live outside, blankets and backpacks and things like that. But he says you can only give those away so many times and then have the police confiscate them and then give them again, and then have the police confiscate them, and then give them again to the point where you're like, I can't, like I can't, like my charity isn't really doing anything good. The laws have to change. In that particular city, I don't know the, the details of it, but the police had every right, based on the law, to, to take the tent or the blanket or whatever from a homeless person. You see this in some cities, where they want to discourage people from hanging out where commerce is happening. And so, yes, you can, you can do things and you can be charitable, but if the people in power aren't on board, it, it becomes limited, the amount of good or the amount of change that you can actually do. And so we see this. Um, uh, this is what the psalm is all about. It's a prayer that those in power would care about what's right. And it tells us very clearly in verse 4 what the psalmist considers right. It says this, May he, the king... Defend the afflicted among the people, and save the children of the needy, and may he crush the oppressor. Can't get any clearer than that. The king, the king of Israel, and I would argue anyone in power, whatever that power looks like, should be directly concerned 
with the afflicted, should save the children of the needy, and crush those who want to take advantage of the vulnerable. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, man, Joe, it's like every other week we're talking about the poor or, you know, issues of justice or the homeless or whatever. Can we talk about something else? And yes, we can. And yes, we do. And yes, we will. But just to be honest with you, we started this series. I was like, hey, let's do a series in the Psalms because that'll be fun. And it'll be a good, like, we'll learn how to pray and how to sing praises to God. I didn't know we were going to read this Psalm. I just didn't. So one of the reasons we talk about this so much is because the Bible talks about it so much. And one of the reasons the Bible talks about this so much is because, friends, this is something God cares deeply about. And so the royal prayer suggests that the king of Israel should care for the poor and the needy and the children of the needy. And if there are people who are oppressing other people, then the king is responsible and expected to stand up and bring them justice, to hold those who are committing crimes accountable. Some studies have been done when we talk about uh, development work or humanitarian work around the world. A lot of studies have been done that in in really poor uh, areas, uh, neighborhoods or countries, um, the issue oftentimes isn't a lack of resources. We think of that. We're like, oh, they just lack material things. It's oftentimes not a lack of resources. And so then they start thinking, well, maybe it's just lack. There's not enough laws to protect people's property or to protect people's rights or to protect people's right to water or things like that. And the reality is, is it's not really a lack of resources and it's not not a lack of laws. A lot of times there's laws in place in, in various cities or in various countries. The real issue is that oftentimes in really poor areas, you'll see this trend. And um, uh, the director of the International Justice Mission wrote an entire book on this topic. You can read it. It's called The Locust Effect. But you'll see this trend, and it's very simple. What happens is there are laws in place, but people in power, governors, leaders, local city officials, aren't enforcing it. And so those who are most vulnerable, oftentimes women and children, suffer the most, not because there aren't laws to protect them from people taking their land or from hurting them, but because those in power aren't enforcing those laws, aren't protecting the needy. That's what this prayer is all about. You can see why it's so important, especially in the ancient world. It says, no, the king needs to be deeply concerned with those who are most vulnerable amongst us. Now, if we could find someone like that, a leader like that, There's an assumption that happens in this psalm. If we could find someone like that who would care deeply for the vulnerable, then, boy, we'd want them to just keep the job. Like, let's keep them in the job long term so that they can, you know, continue to rule and we don't get someone else in there to mess it all up. We just want to keep in the job. Now, that's what he says in verse 5. He says, may uh, the king endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers, water in the earth in his days. May the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. You know, if we could find a king like that, then of course we'd want his reign to never end. We want him to reign as long as the sun is in the sky and come as often as the rain and from one full moon to the other, which is one of the ways they kept track of time during this, this ancient culture. Now, of course they'd want him to always reign if we could find someone like that. But now, as an American, we've kind of given up on that ideal, haven't we? We've just like, I mean, we've just resigned to the fact that the longer someone's in power, the worse they're going to get. 
And so we've written into our systems of leadership term limits for the, for the highest office in the land, for the president. Some suggest, I've read some articles, that it should be in other offices in the government as well, term limits, because we as humans, no matter how good you are, power will eventually corrupt, and we just need to, one of the safety cords, one of the safety nets is you have a term limit. So written into that very system, we say, no, 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 we don't want any king to reign forever because they're eventually going to mess it up. Eight years, that's what you get if you can get reelected. But here, the psalmist dreams of a perfect king, the perfect president, the perfect ruler, whose reign would last as long as the sun and as often as the rain and from one full moon to another. And not only would, would his reign extend across time, but he says he, his reign would extend across space. So to all these places, verse 8, he says, may he rule from sea to shining sea. Sounds like one of our uh, royal songs in our uh, in our culture. He, may he rule from sea to shining sea, from the, from the river to the ends of the earth. May, he, may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. It's an intense thing to say about your enemies. May the king of Tarshish and the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all the kings bow down to him and all the nations serve him. So in other words, if you put these places on a map in the ancient world, his reign would be from it would be from uh, Iraq to Spain, to the Mediterranean Isles, to the southern part of Arabia, which is basically the known world at this time in this particular culture. And that's really the point. The perfect king, well, we'd want his justice and his rule to extend throughout the world. His reign would extend across time, it would never end, and across space. It would just infiltrate all of these other cultures. And he would reign from sea to shining sea for all time, and all the kings from all of these other places would come and bring him gifts, and they would bow down to him. And all the nations would serve him, presenting gifts as a sign of submission. And this wasn't a strange concept in the ancient world. In the world of uh, Assyria and Greece and Persia and Rome, much of the world would be conquered and little nation states would be conquered. And those who were conquered would submit to those who were in power by bringing gifts or tributes and a sign of submission. And maybe even as a chance to win favor that you might get the ability to rule in your particular area. And that was common. It happened all the time. What made this psalm so significant was the reason why these kings are bringing gifts. Because in that time and day, you brought gifts because you were conquered. So someone with massive military force, with chariots and other types of armor and all massive armies, would come into your land, they would destroy you, you now were Roman. And so those local leaders who were smart politically would come and bring gifts and try to win favor so they could rule in that particular area. But it was because of military might. That would come. Well, that wasn't meant to be the case for the king of Israel. The king of Israel would win the respect of the nations because of something different. Look at verse 12, 4, which means this is the reason. What is next is said next, explains why the kings from all of these nations are coming to bring gifts to the king because he did this. For he will deliver the needy who cry out. Not, not because of military might, because he conquered people by force. It's oftentimes what we, people look for in a king. 
even the Israelites at times. But here in this royal psalm, prayer for the king, it says, no, the king's going to win the favor and these people are going to bring gifts and submit to him because he delivered the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He went to the people who had no one to help and he helped them. And he took pity on the weak and the needy and, and he saved the needy from death. People who were going to die unless he interceded, he went and saved them. And the nation saw that and said, we want more of that kind of justice. And he will rescue from the oppression and violence for precious is their sight their blood in his sight. So their blood, their life, even the most vulnerable, those who are on the brink of death, who will be destroyed unless those in power intercede, they are precious in this king's sight. And that's why he's going to be praised all over the earth. And people will come and bring him gifts because he loved the vulnerable. Now, some would see this kind of justice, this kind of compassion as weak. (laughs) The people of Israel sang about this as true greatness. True power is willing to look at everyone, especially the vulnerable, as worthy of justice. And this king would be worth celebrating, worth following. And and it goes on to say, repeating many of what we've already talked about, it says, long may he live and may gold from Sheba be given to him and may people ever pray for him and bless him all the day and may grain abound throughout the land. May there be prosperity, shalom, and on the top of the hills may it sway, and may the crops flourish like, the, like our friends over in Lebanon, and thrive like the grass of the field, and may his name endure forever, and may it continue as long as the sun. And then, and then they throw this line in right after this, a very significant line. It was a clear quote of another passage in the Bible. It's verse 17b, and it says, and then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. You see, this king does what is right. And when he does what is right, that's how the nations will be blessed. This is a promise that God made Abraham in Genesis 22.8, where it says, though through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. It's one of the first promises. It's a very important promise. One of the first promises that God made to the people of God. In fact, it was the promise that made the people of Abraham the people of God. It was a simple promise that, that Abraham, who had no kids at this time, would be given a family, a child who would grow into a family, and that would become a nation. And this nation would, this new people would be used to bless all other nations. You see, that's what the reign of Israel was always supposed to do. The way they lived in this world that was filled with corruption and pain and war and tragedy and people, the people of Israel would live differently. And the king of Israel was meant to show the other nation's leaders a better way. A better way would would then spread to these other nations, blessing them. And, And this better way was meant to be rooted in how we treat the vulnerable around us. Now, that is a tall order, a lot of pressure. For any leader, it's a tall order. It's a, it's a lot to ask. I think we should still ask it of our leaders, but it's a lot and it's hard. Partly because it's not what people always want. It's not always what people want. It's not what people look for in a leader or a president, a Caesar or a king or whatever. Hey, I really want you to care for the vulnerable. It's not always what you hear. And so it's not always easy to find leaders like this. In fact, I wonder, and I challenge you to do this, if you pulled this psalm out and you began to pray it, and use the language, and all of it applies, but if you began to use some of this language around caring for the vulnerable, you begin to pray for our leaders, our city's leaders, our state, and national, international leaders, and you say, God, make these, be, make these things be true for our leaders. Change their hearts so they care about these things. If you begin to pray that every day, here's what might happen. 
you might become very dissatisfied with the state of the world. It, it might begin to create in you this really deep longing for something better because if you begin to pray it earnestly and passionately and say, God, give, give our leaders a heart for those who are vulnerable. Give me a heart for You might find yourself very dissatisfied with the state of the world. And this is what happened with the people of Israel. They prayed this, at least at every coronation service, based on our understanding of this, of this psalm. Probably it was memorized in other settings. And these kings, their kings, although they had many, didn't live up to this ideal. Um, you can read about that in the prophets. They give them a hard time about all of this stuff. They fail at all of these areas, especially about caring for the poor. These kings, they fell short. Some of them got close, but most of them fell short. In fact, they fell short so often. Guess what happened? The whole kingdom gets overthrown. God says, I'm done with you. He says, you have done this so poorly, you've messed up more than you've gotten right, that I'm going to let your enemies come and take you over. So you're done. I'm done with you. And they did. The, 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 the empire at that time came and invaded the northern kingdom and then the, and then the southern kingdom and took them over, and, and they, they, they lost all their power. But guess what? They held on to this psalm. They still prayed this psalm, which is interesting because they no longer had a king at this point. Even when they moved back to their homeland after their captivity, they were in a Persian empire and then the Greek empire and the Roman empire. They were living in occupation and still they held on to this psalm. And the psalm changed its meaning a little bit because they were no longer praying for their king. They didn't have one. They were praying for a king. I said, oh God, wouldn't it be great if we could have a king who did things like this? And they begin to refer to this king as the Messiah, which meant anointed one. It's what it took for someone to live into this kind of ideal, someone who was set aside, special, unique, the anointed one, the Messiah. Or Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek word would be Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. If we could have a king like that, wouldn't that be great? And this prayer, when it was no longer used in the courts, was used to pray for that future king. And they knew that in order for someone to ever live into this kind of ideal, that God alone would have to do it. And that's, that's ultimately where this psalm ends, verse 18. It says, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. You know, this psalm doesn't end by saying, as many people in many other cultures, uh, it doesn't say, praise be to our king. Or uh, praise be to the marvelous deeds that our king has been able to accomplish. No, anything Israel's king did right was credited to God. Because they knew, left to their own devices, the king wouldn't do what they prayed for. That's why they prayed for it. And so when it happened, God got the credit. I don't know if you know this, that when you ask God for something, not only are you asking God for something, but you are surrendering your right to take credit for it if it happens. I mean, if you assume God's going to act when you pray, if you ask God for something that's only possible if God acts, and then God acts, and you say, boy, look at me, you've missed it. You weren't asking God for anything. You didn't really believe God was going to do anything. Because if you ask for something, and then God does it, you got to say, man, that was God. And that's what happened. That's what the psalm is all about. It's like, God, we're asking for all of these things. And when it comes true, when you bring us a king like that, you're going to get all the credit because you're the only one who can do this. 
And so they end by saying, verse 19, praise be to his glorious name forever. We've changed the subject now, not the king, but the but the but God. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Praise be to God, the perfect king. So friends, we believe here gathered in Jesus' name that Jesus is that king, the Messiah. That Jesus is not only the king, but that Jesus is God, who could only be the perfect king, and that Jesus came and lived amongst us as a human. Did you, I hope you know this. Did you, you knew that Jesus' last name wasn't Christ, right? Like you knew that. It's not Jesus Christ like Joseph Graves. Like Christ was a title. It's Greek for Messiah. It's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the, the king that this psalm began to long for. Jesus the anointed king. This king, God in the flesh, who would do everything written in this psalm and more. Jesus was born as someone in need, as someone who was poor, because that's what would make a great king, wouldn't it? Because if Jesus had grown up poor, he would know what it meant to care for the poor and for the needy, just like a great king would. A great king isn't made because of riches and opportunity or privilege. A great king would be born into humble circumstances. So we sing Jesus was born poor and needy. And at the time of his birth, I don't know if you remember this, he was visited by different representatives from other nations, wasn't he? We call them in the Christmas story, if you remember it, Magi, or we even sing, We Three Kings. Do you know that song? And they brought what? Gifts, tribute, just like the psalm said. Not because he had great military power, he was a baby at this point, but because he was meek and humble. Not sure about mild, but maybe. If I, My experience of children, probably not. And he grew up to become the kind of king we need. Not always the one that people wanted, but the one that we needed. And he did what was right, and he, he was a fair judge, and he fought for the poor, and he loved those on the margins, and he, he was just and right and good and kind. And when we live the way he taught us to live, guess what? Life flourishes. There's prosperity and peace, what we call shalom. And here's the best part. His reign has now spread to every nation in the world. Every, in every corner of the world, there's people who have chosen Jesus to be their king. There's still many places that need to hear this good news, but there are people on every continent who've said, Jesus is my king. More than any local government, more than any nation, more than any other identity, Jesus is my king, and it's spread to every corner of the world. And not only that, but... It's promised to continue forever. It survived 2,000 years and has only grown. And like the Psalms said, what would happen, this good king finally came and, it, and his good news has spread. When we read Psalm 72, not only do we see the ideal for any leader, but we see that Jesus is the ideal leader, that Jesus is the king we've been praying for. And so... If you find yourself in a situation, you begin to pray this psalm or any of the psalms about the kings and you get this longing inside for something better, something more, and you just get frustrated with your boss or with our president, not that you would, but just, you know, just get frustrated and you want something better, something more. As Christians, what makes us Christian is that we've come together for those, and I understand that not everyone even in this room is, is a Christian, and I want you to know that you're welcome here, uh, regardless of where you're at. You're totally welcome here. 
But what makes someone a Christian, so I want, especially if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this. What makes someone a Christian, or maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're really not, I want you to hear this. What makes someone a Christian is to say, Jesus is going to be my king. That's, 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 I'm, I'm now no longer in charge of my life. I want to belong to a new uh, nation. Kingdom is kind of a weird word, isn't it? King, we don't have kingdoms anymore. I want to belong to a new nation, a new people, and I want to submit my life to God's authority. Because when I long for the perfect king, I, I study and I read the life of Jesus and even the work that Jesus is still doing in the lives of his people when they get it right, anyways, I say, that's what I want, that's what my life to be about. So Jesus is my king, and I surrender. I'm going to invite the musicians up as we close our service, and I want to I ask you, I want to challenge you. Where are you at with God? Do you consider Jesus your king, your leader, your ultimate authority? Have you, have you reached that point of surrender? We said, this isn't about me anymore. I want to do what's right, and I want to do what's just, and I want to care for the vulnerable, and I want, to, I want to be a part of a new kind of kingdom that is doing things differently, and the only way I can be a part of that is to say, Jesus, I come before you, just like the nations would, just like the Magi would, I come before you, and I bow before you, and I say, this is my life, this is what I have to offer, it's yours now, I'm paying tribute to you, I'm submitting to you, you're my king. I want to invite you, especially if this is your first time, we'd love to talk to you more about what it means for Jesus to be your king, to choose to follow Jesus. In fact, on your Connect card, there's even a place. I want to learn more about following Jesus. That's code word for I want Jesus to be my king. You can check it and fill it out, put it in the box, and we would love to have that conversation with you and to, to, to talk to you in just a very non-judgmental, very welcoming, very friendly uh, uh, sort of way. We'd just love to have that conversation. But I let, regardless of that, I want you to know that right now, as we sing and as we end, you can, you can bow before God, literally, if there's room, or figuratively, and say, Jesus, you're my king. Regardless of where you're at in your faith, I invite you to do that. Will you stand as we uh, prepare our hearts to sing? God, we come before you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to work into our hearts, that as we lift up your name on high and we, we proclaim you king, that you would prick our hearts. Challenge us to continue to strive for what's right and just, especially, especially, especially when it's really hard. Give us the words to pray. Help us uh, be humble enough to pray for even those leaders we disagree with and continue to seek your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray, amen.